with us. So glad to have all of you. I'm with I'm Jeline Jackson with Moms for America, where we believe that liberty begins at home. Last week we started our first of the 16-week Healing of America seminar. I hope you all had a chance to get your books. These books go for four weeks. There's four one-hour classes. Uh, our second book will be The Constitution. The third book will be How We Got Broke. And the fourth book will be How Do We Heal Our America, Our Homes, Our Communities, Our Schools, Our Constitution. So we are in this very first book this week, section book uh, one, section two, raised up for this very purpose today. Now, remember, you have a little bit of homework each week there, fill in the blank, you retain and remember things more that you have a multi-sensory experience with. You listen, you write, you see. So the key is in the back of these manuals. If you haven't gotten the manuals, manuals I highly recommend. I think they're four of the manuals are $50 or you can buy them for $20 a piece. You can get them at the Moms for America store. Last week, we had our our first lesson, and we talked about how God used little Joan of Arc in 1425, and then Christopher Columbus in 1492, and then 120 years later, how he brought forth the pilgrims who knew they had a special assignment from God, and how God used these people. And oftentimes, you might not connect how Joan of Arc had a significant role in saving France, and France 350 years later would be would come to George Washington's aid in the last battle of the Revolutionary War, uh, that battle of Yorktown, to help win the war for us. So we needed the French fleet's navy naval help. And we wouldn't have had France and we wouldn't have had little Joan of Arc. And so we learn these great stories and people from the past that God used in order to establish uh, this land here in America. So, you know, the whole idea is mamas and grandmothers, we come together, we learn, and then we teach our children and grandchildren. When we know our children, our posterity will know. You know, when I began to attend cottage meetings 13 years ago, that's exactly what I did. We, we mothers met together and we learned these principles, 28 principles of liberty. And inevitably we all went home and taught our kids around the dinner table or in a little family devotional. And when I began to weave these stories and miracles of America into our little devotional where we were just studying the Bible, singing a little gospel song and praying, when I began to weave the stories and of the heroes of America in, it really took our family devotional to kind of a higher and holier level because I was we were not only trying to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the home, but now we are teaching the gospel of freedom, those principles, those stories and miracles of freedom. And God and freedom goes together. We know that where there's the spirit of God, there's the spirit of liberty. So Laura is going to uh, uh, help us through the PowerPoint today. Lord, let's let's start that PowerPoint there. They, those that were raised up for this very purpose, we're going to talk about uh, particularly Samuel Adams and Thomas Jefferson and the role of the their unique training that they had. So, Laura, let's skip that first PowerPoint. Okay. Raised up for this very purpose. Let me make sure you can see me. Give me just a second. Okay. I'll get it. <clears throat> okay, and then the next slide. So I'm just showing you, this is what the family devotion looks like. When it was little, it looked a little bit different, but 
my husband went through these Healing of America seminars. And so he and I began to be on the same page why we should teach, teach these things to our children. And he uh, often leads, has led for years our family devotional. And then the next uh, slide. So now I just have one child. We have one child left at home. And now I sit at the counter island and it's just she and, and I in the morning. And then sometimes daddy at night will study scripture even again so daddy can get in on uh all right, we're studying the New Testament this year. He led us in the discussion of the parables of the sower uh, just the other night. And so this is so, you know, your devotional changes as the kids, uh, the ages when they're little, you teach differently than when you teach when they're teenagers and adults. If you all will um, join us in our 12, 12 series, Cottage Meeting series, I, I teach specifically how, uh, how to teach, you know, children of all different ages and, and what are some of the fruits by teaching them principles of liberty. So let's see the next slide. So, you know, it's interesting when your children know that you're trying to teach them godly principles. Let's have that next slide, Laura. And you're teaching them principles of freedom. So now my kids know mom and dad love America. We go, we teach these stories. We we teach the Constitution and how it was uh, written specifically to protect families. Oftentimes, we'll bring our children. So, you know, a child that sees a mom and a dad, a grandma and a grandpa, united in these core values of God and devotion to family and freedom, it strengthens that kid in ways that you might not even realize right now, because they might just be rolling their eyes as you are teaching them these stories of Joan of Arc or, you know, Thomas Jefferson or the Revolutionary War. But what it does is it will stable them. It will keep them anchored in hope when they go out in the world and they sit in the classroom and they're told lies and falsehoods about this country and, and the specialists of the, our founders. And so when, remember, when you're anchored, when you understand these things, your children, when they leave their home and have to go out and spread their wings, they will be anchored in hope. They'll be able to discern truth from error. They will be able to offer a counter a story to what they might be hearing in social media or in the universities or in the high schools. So Ted Cruz recently said, um, he said, look, we are on the right side of freedom, but we need to remember to be happy warriors, not he, I think he likes Star Wars, but he said, not angry, harsh, uh, kind of soulless stormtroopers that just do what they are told. I'm watching The Mandalorian with my husband right now. It's completely an act as, uh, out of love because I don't I don't like any of those kind of movies. But think of those little stormtroopers that, you know, just did exactly what they were told. And it's kind of this whole philosophy right now in our country of this collectivism. And we saw it play out in COVID where you really don't ask questions. You just do what you're told. And uh, Ted Cruz says that kind of I. I idealism of this, of this just, just do what you're told because the government knows best, the experts know best. It really saps the human spirit. So what Ted Cruz reminded us when I heard him speak recently is we need to be happy and hopeful warriors that are rooted in God and rooted in truth. And so it gives us the confidence to be able to stand up and to push back and be proactive in learning, just like we're learning now together, and then defending when we hear things that are not right. And this is who we're going to study today, some happy warriors. So we talked 
last week of Joan of Arc. And when I see happy warriors, that doesn't mean what, you know, they didn't experience hardship and, and trials and, uh, you know, difficulty, but they were confident and they were determined and they were courageous because they knew they stood on the side of God and the, and the side of truth as was Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the Pilgrims. And now this takes us to uh, 1776. So just around the mid 1700s in England uh, uh, comes, let's see this next slide, uh, George III. He was the grandson of uh, uh, George II who was actually German and George I who was German. So George III was actually the first king uh, in the 1700s that was uh, born in England, was English, was educated in England, and he's Eng uh, educated in England and spoke English beautifully. And he was considered a true patriot king, and he was extremely popular amongst the English people. But his policies in the 1760s uh, were going to begin to antagonize the American colonists. Now he was a good moral man. He had 15 children. Ultimately he would go insane. Some people as a joke say that's probably why he went insane with 15 children. But um, let's see the next slide, Laura. In the early 1760s, he ordered a strict enforcement of the navigation acts to suppress the purchase of foreign goods. So the whole idea was to buy English and keep money at home. And so uh, what resulted was this extensive smuggling, both in England and America. So to suppress this smuggling of the offenders, he put forth, let's see the next slide, uh, issued writs of assistance, which allowed uh, the English to go into homes or private businesses looking for smuggled goods. And then in 1763, he also issued an order that said the colonists couldn't cross the mountains and settle into the Ohio Valley. And some of them had already begun to do that. So this was causing even uh, further uh, resentment amongst the colonists. And then let's see the next slide there, Laura. Then in 1765, the king had parliament pass the Stamp Act which meant uh, that they were going to be every printed material, magazines, newspapers, any legal documents had to be produced on paper that had a stamp on it. And it was really a form of a taxation. And this is where uh, that phrase taxation without representation uh, began to be heard in the colonies because they didn't have any representation in parliament in, uh, in England. And so even though the Stamp Act was repealed in 1766, the king, let's see the next slide, put forth the Townsend Act, which was just a series of tax programs on glass and lead and tea and paint. And at this point, uh, British troops began arriving in America to enforce the collection of um, these taxes under all these new acts that were coming forth. Let's see the next slide. And there even was a, a quartering act passed about this time that, that forced the colonists to have to provide, let's see the next slide, room and board for the soldiers free of charge. Imagine <laughs> the British soldiers just showing up at your house and you had to you know, put them up for a time. So you can see that these series of events were going to lead to an eruption of violence. Now in Boston, 
1770, there was about 16,000 colonists and about 2,000 British soldiers. And so they were ripening, this situation was ripe to have something like this that occurred in 1770, the Boston Massacre, where a crowd of 300 men and boys, uh, colonists, um, gathered in the, the town area and they uh, were uh, provoking uh, the British soldiers and they actually began to throw snowballs at, this, um, at the Brits and some of the snowballs had rocks in them and so the British soldiers fired on the crowd and five colonists were killed that day in March uh, of 5th, 1770. So imagine all the depictions and reports and propaganda now that began uh, to swirl around this event amongst the 13 colonies and how it heightened the tensions throughout um, uh, that region. And as some might say, this Boston massacre was really the foreshadowing event to the Revolutionary War that would really pick up in the next five years. So in 1773, let's see that next slide, uh, the, the colonists had had it with these taxes. So they refused to drink the tea that was coming over on the English ships with the, the English uh, tax. Um, and they wouldn't even allow the, the tea to be unloaded. They would just send these tea ships back to England with the exception of Boston. So the Bostonians, and here's the site today of the Boston massacre site in uh, Boston, uh, right downtown. Let's see that next slide. So in 1773, uh, in Boston, the people refused to let the tea be unloaded from the ships, but the British governor refused to let the ships return back to England. So in December of 1773, the Sons of Liberty in the night boarded the boats dressed as Indians and dumped all the tea into um, the harbor there. And uh, these Sons of Liberty were led by a man by the name of Samuel Adams. Now these Sons of Liberty were known as provocateurs and patriots, and they used civil disobedience to intimidate the loyalists and really outrage the British governor. And you know, some say that um, there might not have been a revolution or, or, or this kind of fight without uh, Samuel Adams. He uh, was a great freedom fighter and, and a real, uh, the ultimate patriot. He, um, of course, is the second cousin to John Adams. It's interesting to know during the Boston Massacre, John Adams, who would go on to become our second president, actually defended the British soldiers. Now, this wasn't a popular thing that John Adams did, but he knew that, um, you know, we had a right to, this is an inalienable right to assemble peaceably but when we mob someone, uh, we are violating this inalienable right. And so he defended the British soldiers in court and they actually uh, won, he won that case for them. But this would become the basis for the first amendment in the constitution that he would be a part of writing this right to uh, assemble peaceably and the right to have a, a trial by jury. Because up until this point, if you were accused of a wrong, uh, by the English, you were just thrown into the dungeon. And certainly they knew their history. They knew that Joan of Arc had been falsely accused. And so they needed to have a trial to, to kind of uh, hash this out. And so um, hence we're ripening, ripening to the point where we are going to break away from England in 1776, the birth of a nation. Now our forefathers 
are called forefathers uh, for a reason, but there actually were four fathers. The father of our country, George Washington, the father of the constitution, James Madison, the father of morality, guess who that is? Benjamin Franklin. He was known as the golden patriot. It's so interesting and we will talk about him uh, in seminar one, section four, how modern historians have defamed his character. So he wrote a book on virtues and, and they would want you to think he was a, a, an immoral, the degenerate perverted man, but he was known as the father of morality. And then the father of the revolution is Samuel Adams. Now, Samuel Adams was 14 years of age when he entered um, Harvard and he would graduate with a master's degree from Harvard at 21. And he passed up uh, uh, lucrative business opportunities because he wanted to study the divine sound um, science of politics. And he really was Samuel Adams, there he is, was on the forefront of almost every major development with the birth of America. And that is often why we call him the father of the American Revolution. Um, Samuel Adams was the first to have a price put on his head. At first, the British officials tried to bribe him with gold and high offices if he would stop, uh, stop the work that he was doing against them, but he refused, of course, to do that. So they issued a reward of 500 pounds for his capture whether he were to be dead or alive. So you can see that these were, I hope you can't hear my doggy here, he's swimming. <laughs> they were, um, these were really dangerous times that these uh, men and women were living in if they were to break from um, England and go against King George. They were doing it at the peril of their life. They truly did pledge their lives and their fortunes and their honors because if they were caught doing so by uh, the British soldiers, they would be executed. And so during this next brief period of 12 months from uh, 1775 to uh, 1776, April of 1775, there was a series of events that caused the, the loyalty to turn from the English uh, to, to this effort to break away. Um, really during the last 15 years, uh, of, under King George's rule, the people had met uh, his abuses with protest and petitions. They would write letters across and send it across the ocean. But at every turn, these petitions were met with repeated injuries. And that's actually a line right out of the um, Declaration of Independence. At every stage of our oppression, we have petitioned the government, but we have been met with repeated injuries. And so in April of 1775, the shot that was heard around the world, has anyone ever been to Lexington or Concord? I'm going to go uh, in the next month or two. I told Al, I was like, honey, I've never been there. I'd like to go and feel the spirit of that place. In um, the Massachusetts, it was the, um, the shot that was heard around the world. It was really kind of what began the Revolutionary War. That's when uh, Paul Revere had that famous night ride and he was you know two lights uh if the british were coming by sea one light if they were coming by land in the old north uh, church steeple and, and this is what ensued from that the battle of lexington where 95 americans were killed and then just about uh, uh two months later in june of 1775 let's see that next um slide was the battle of bunker hill 
where over 500 Americans, remember we went from five little colonists that were killed in 1770 to 1775, 500 uh, American colonists were killed on Bunker Hill. The interesting thing is over a thousand British soldiers were killed. And this really proved to the British that the colonists <laughs> were serious foes. Let's see the next slide. So, you know, about five months ago, we took our kids to Plymouth, Massachusetts and to Boston over Thanksgiving. Let's see the next slide. And we went and we went to the gravesite of Samuel Adams. And I told the story of Samuel Adams to them. And um, the picture of the, oh, let's go back to the, the last slide. Uh, and it, we see, I showed them, uh, we went to the old South church. Let's see, can we go back to that last slide? This one? Uh, yeah, right okay. there. We're the, the four kids. Uh, actually, actually, let's go back one more. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, I showed you <laughs> the old North church. Let's go back if we can to the old North church. There you go. <laughs> and this is where um, John Adams, when he was 10, sat in and saw the hand of God in that hurricane. <laughs> Let's go back. Let's keep going back to, to the hurricane that, that swept all the French brigade. And, and John Adams said, I became a patriot that day. And then in that last slide, uh, also, we took them to the old North Church where Paul Revere had the ride and hung the lanterns up when I told those stories. And then this is the picture of the uh, uh, there's Bunker the the monument of Bunker Hill we talked about that and and there is the gravesite of uh, Paul Revere and his night ride you know there's something powerful about taking your children to these sites and I know some of you are on the west coast and so it might be a little bit difficult to take them to some of these early historical sites but even um, meaningful sites in your state where men and women did courageous and brave things to retell these stories because it helps when you take them to these sacred sites. I consider these sites sacred. It helps them, you know, plant these seeds in their hearts of these stories. And these stories will rise up in their hour of need when they have to do something difficult and hard and courageous. It helps to raise up the next generation of patriots when we can take them to these sites instead of always just, you know, a Disney kind of experience for travel or entertainment or time that you spend together. I call these, these opportunities is what I consider quality family time together. When you go to these past historical sites where brave men and women did things that that you want your children to, to write in their hearts. So let's see the next slide. Thank you so much. I so appreciate um and you, Laura and Z, for helping with my PowerPoint. So let's go on to the next slide. In uh, July, a few months later, 1775, Washington took over the siege of Boston, and here he took command and became General Washington. Now, at this point, King George issued a, a fatal proclamation declaring that there was general rebellion that had, was existing in all the colonists, and any rebel leaders were to be arrested and brought to justice justice, which meant executed. And then in uh, December of 1775, the king issued even a harsher proclamation, abolishing the colonist status as British subjects. And the king said that the Americans were to be treated as enemies in any uh, trade with the colonies was outlawed. Any American ships were to be seized. Their cargo was to be confiscated. And um, at this point, the colonists could not tolerate these abuses much longer. 
And so we think of 1776 as a glorious time in American history, but really it wasn't very glorious at all to our founding fathers. And in fact, many of them considered this some of the worst years of America's formative period. And I often think in my life, some of those years you look back and you go, oh, that was such a hard month or a year or a decade. But really, it seems like when we go through some of these worst experiences, worst trials or challenges, that is what makes us the, the women that we are, that we have to at times endure seasons of darkness moving forward in faith. And when we can look back on perspective, we can see the good that came out of it. But at the time, we feel like, you know, heaven has just unleashed uh, its wrath. And I'm sure that's how they felt in 1776. They had lost their campaign in Canada. And so the troops were retreating and back to Washington and joining him during that siege of Boston, siege of Boston, 4,000 of Washington's uh, uh, troops left him and that the troops would only enlist for six months and they usually wouldn't re-enlist after the six months. So morale was low amongst the troops. And of course we know the American colonies had been disowned by King George III. And so many of the leaders in the colonies recognized that the circumstances uh, were leading them to become separated and to be independent from Britain, but not a single colony knew what to do or uh, meaning how to govern themselves. Now, Virginia was the largest colony of the 13 colonies and, and they were expected to figure it out for the other 12 colonies to lead the way in discovering the best form of a, an independent government. Now, Virginia had already um, drafted six versions of a practical constitution uh, and uh, Thomas Jefferson comes into the scene now. Thomas Jefferson, look, I've got Tom, I got, I have Mr. Jefferson here on my shoulder today. And uh, he was 33 years old. He had been married for four years during 1776. And he was really considered the foremost constitutionalist in the world. And you will learn why in a minute when I tell you how God prepared him to do the work that he was going to have to do over the next uh, several months. Um, he had written, Thomas Jefferson had written three constitutional drafts in the matter of five weeks during this time period, but they were all rejected by the Virginia legislature. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a, a delegate from the uh, Virginia uh, con uh, um, Congress at this point. And uh, they had been, and the legislature in Virginia had rejected his constitutional drafts. And they had kept all but just a small part of what he had written. And they actually uh, adopted a temporary constitution that had retained most of the weaknesses that had existed under British law. Now you can see why that would have been so reprehensible to Thomas Jefferson. Why are we wanting to hang on to what was familiar when it's the very thing that we're fighting against? So in the constitution that the Virginia legislature put forth, it still had slavery in it. It had primogeniture, which meant that the oldest child in the family, the son inherited all the property, which often diminished economic growth. Let's say the oldest son is a bad businessman. And, and, it, and it also included Intel estates, which meant large estates couldn't be divided. And it also had the official state church um, 
you know, leading uh, still in power. And so you can see why this was offensive to Thomas Jefferson. He instinctively knew that America somehow was going to win this war and that they were going to be free, but he feared they wouldn't know what to do with their freedom. And so it, it just weighed on his mind. He had to get this constitution and get it right. And because he knew that Virginia's constitution was going to be an example and a model for the other states. So we're at the point in our uh, manual under um, section, I believe that's five, the genius of Thomas Jefferson's plan. Are you, are you clipping away with me here in our manual under um, section two today? In 1776, Jefferson had already discovered the basic success formula that was going to be incorporated into the constitution of the United States. Although he probably didn't anticipate how difficult it was going to be to get people to accept these ideas. Nevertheless, he was probably the best prepared of all the founders to launch this foundation because of his remarkable educational background, even by modern standards. Um, at the age uh, of nine, he began to study Latin and Greek and French. And at the age of 16, let's see that next slide. He entered the college of William and Mary. Has anyone ever been to that college? It's in Colonial Williamsburg. It's beautiful. It's the architecture. And there's actually some original buildings that date clear back to 1692. It's the second oldest university in America. Harvard is the oldest. So Jefferson was educated starting at 16 at William and Mary. And let's see the next slide. I think this is, if you, if you go to Colonial Williamsburg, for sure, take a little tour of, of the campus there. And then let's see the next slide. Um, in Colonial Williamsburg, they've recreated that colonial town. And my favorite house there is this house. This is George Wythe's house. George Wythe was a founding father, and he was the first professor of law in America. And he, Thomas Jefferson, was educated in that upper left room um, there. Uh, George Wythe was his legal, uh, his law professor. And Thomas Jefferson, uh, there was a period in his life as a young man, he would study 12 to 14 hours a day. And when he um, took the bar examination, it was said that he actually knew more than the men that were examined, that were administering this exam to him. So uh, he, just a summary of his, of his educational background, he gained proficiency in five languages. He studied the Roman classics, the Greek classics. He studied European history. He carefully studied the Old and New Testament. I don't know if anyone can see here this book, it's called Jefferson's Bible. When he was president, he actually made his own Bible and he cut out extracts of um, the words of Christ in the parables uh, in four languages, Latin, French, English, and Greek, and made his own Bible. And oftentimes he kept the words of Christ in his front little pocket as he went about. This is a wonderful book. I would recommend getting it because so many people will say he was a deist. He didn't believe in God. And over and over, he, he identified himself as a Christian. And he said the very last thing he would read before he went to bed each night, he would study as a moral, moral piece of literature, and he would study the Bible, because he said that which the last thing you think about when you sleep is what you think about throughout the night. Is it, wouldn't that be a good story to uh, tell your children as you read them a little Bible story before you put them to bed? 
show them the example of Thomas Jefferson. Also, when Thomas Jefferson was a young boy studying, he would go on long walks each day to take a break from his study, and he would memorize on his walks. I was so inspired by his example. That is how I memorized the 28 Principles of Liberty from the little bookmark here. Um, was when I would go out, I, I walk the dog every day and I memorized because of Jefferson's example of memorizing when he would go out for walks. So it's, it's also interesting, while he studied the Bible of ancient Israel is when he made the astonishing discovery uh, at the time how the Israelites under Moses practiced the earliest and most efficient form of representative government because Moses, when he was leading the, the I think it was 3 million Israelites across the wilderness for 40 years, he would set up captains of 10 and of 50s and captains over 100 families, captains over 1,000 families, and only the most difficult uh, problems would be addressed by him. And that is the first form of representative government, common law, the law uh, um, uh, Moses's, well, that's not the law of Moses, but it's called common law. And and what, what um, uh, Moses also, or Jefferson also discovered when he studied the Anglo-Saxons, remember we talked about them last year, that they use these same ancient principles. And Thomas Jefferson uh, referred to this constitutional pattern of government that he discerned in the first five books of the Bible as ancient principles of government. And, and you're going to see how he embedded these ancient principles in the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And he also found when he studied the Anglo-Saxons from about 450, remember AD, to about 1000 AD before they were conquered by the Normans, the Vikings, that they used these same ancient principles and almost followed identically um, these principles that the Is Israelites had. And there's great commentary about the Anglo-Saxons in this 5,000 year elite book. This is why many people thought that the Anglo-Saxons were a part of the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel that were scattered during the, um, uh, the Syrian um, the 700 BC, you know, those lost tribes scattered and we never really know where they went. So, um, and Jefferson also at this time or, or throughout, you know, his years of learning and studying that got him to age 33 and writing the declaration, he studied um, uh, thoroughly uh, British history and uh, kind of that thousand year period where the English people really did more to revive human freedom on earth where we see the Magna Carta to 1215 under King John and then the Bill of Rights and the um, uh, Bill of Rights and the Petition of Rights. So he would take lines out of those freedom documents as well and was going to embed them in the Declaration of Independence. So you can see how Jefferson's years of extensive study really prepared him for this work that God needed him to perform. A stranger at one point said, when, when Jefferson spoke of law, I thought he was an attorney, or when he spoke of mechanics, I thought he was an engineer, or when he spoke of medicine, I thought for sure he was a physician, or when he spoke of theology, I knew he had to have been a clergyman, and when he spoke of literature, I thought he was a college professor who knew everything. This is really the brilliance and the genius of this man. So um, Thomas Jefferson, let's see the slide. Let's see where we are on our slides. I have a feeling. Monticello. 
Yeah, Monticello. Have any of you been to Monticello? It's uh, in the town of Charlottesville in Virginia. So Thomas Jefferson's father died at 14 and Thomas Jefferson inherited about 5,000 acres of land. And he would go on to design and build this home. It's a wonderful tour. Uh, there's some things that annoy me about Monticello, <laughs> and let, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but structurally it's a beautiful home and you do feel the spirit of what he tried to accomplish there. In, in Monticello, it's about an hour out of Washington, D.C., there's a cemetery there where he's buried and he said, I, when I die, I want on my tombstone three things. I wish to be remembered by uh, three achievements and I want them on my tombstone and, and, tombstone, and, and they are. Uh, number one, that he was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Number two, that he was the author of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom. And number three, he was the father of the University of Virginia. He founded the University of Virginia. And so that is on his tombstone. Now, at 29, he would marry Martha Washington. No, no, that's George. Martha <laughs> Jefferson. <laughs> I think her name was Diles. Martha... And I think he actually had a little Patsy was his little name for her, Martha uh, Patsy Styles. She was 24 years old. He was 29. She had actually been married before and had a little babe, but her husband and the child uh, had died when the babe was three years old, kind of like Martha Washington. She had been married before she met George, but the husband had died. And, and uh, I think Oh, I think two of her children had died. So um, she and uh, Thomas had six children together in the course of 10 years. She was only going to live 10 years and die at age 34. Out of those six children, only two of those children lived uh, into adulthood. And so uh, when they were married, one of his wedding presents to her was a piano because he played the violin and she played the piano. And it, it was said that, um, let's see that, that next slide. It was said that they had a happy marriage and that she was a, a popular and a gracious hostess and managed the large house so well. And, uh, you know, they, they, their love of music together was a great attraction uh, for each other. And when she would die, uh, when she was 34, he would say the last 10 years of my life, I have lived in uncheckered happiness. And there was a slave in the room that when she was dying, heard him say that he would never marry again. He could not. Mm. So it's interesting. Let's see the next uh, slide. There's a book. I love this book. I've read this book to my children. It's called, there's, there's a book called The Real Thomas Jefferson, and there's also one that's called The Real George Washington and The Real uh, Benjamin Franklin. But, uh, you know, when you go to Monticello, they seemed overly consumed, I believe, with slave, the enslaved. And this book here sheds a different light on the relationship that Thomas Jefferson had uh, with uh, the enslaved. He inherited uh, a lot of slaves from his family. And, uh, and, and then of course, all the controversy that uh, came to light in 1990 about Thomas Jefferson uh, fathering Sally Hemming, uh, a slave woman's children and having illegitimate children with her. Um, this story is completely debunked in this book and because it, it talks about how it was really one of the enemies of Jefferson that wasn't appointed to a position that he wanted to be appointed to. His name is James Callender when Jefferson was president. And so he started these rumors 
that Jefferson was fathering slave children because there was known to be mulatto, that's what they called them in the day, mixed children. My children are all mixed. Sometimes I call them mulatto when I'm trying to get their attention, but not, not really, it's not a term that's very popular these days. But Calendar, uh, this James Calendar, knew that there was mulatto children running around at um, Thomas Jefferson's home. And so he, he started the rumor that Thomas Jefferson was fathering these uh, slaves. Uh, uh, these children um, through through the slaves. And Thomas Jefferson was president at the time, and he simply said, look, my friends know the truth, and my enemies wouldn't believe me anyway. So he just didn't pay any attention to those rumors. And so really, uh, those stories died down. But when um, uh, Bill Clinton had his um, scandal with Monica Lewinsky, in the 1990s is when this story was uh, brought to life again. And I think some of it was that they were trying to just prove to people that, oh, this is what our you know leaders do. This is what Thomas Jefferson did. This is what Bill Clinton is just a part of, you, you know, power, powerful men. But um, there's a, a wonderful book as well called The Jefferson Lies by David Barton that scientifically disputes the, the DNA um, uh, argument that was made in the 1990s that um, it says he makes the case that it wasn't Jefferson that fathered uh, these children. The DNA pro proves that it was a Jefferson, one of 26 Jeffersons that lived in the area at that time uh, that fathered Sally Hemings' child. Now, the Y chromosomes, I, I'm going to try and not make this too complicated, but I, there, just know that there are books that completely dispute, uh, you know, the stories that have come out in recent years, uh, David Barton, the real uh, Thomas Jefferson. And, and these books are actually in the library when you go to Monticello, some of these books are there. And uh, my husband is actually, when we go to Monticello, he always um, refutes some of these things to the tour guides and they look so nervous because all they're taught to say is what the script tells them to say that he fathered these slave children. But uh, the Y chromosome belongs to a male and uh, that Y chromosome stays unchanged. But Thomas Jefferson didn't have a surviving son. He had one son who died when he was young. So the best that they can conclude scientifically through DNA is that one of 26 uh, Jefferson men uh, had fathered because there was Jefferson chromosome in Sally Hemming, but it was not. They cannot prove that it was Thomas Jefferson's chromosome. And, uh, and really, at the time, they believed, uh, you know, some of these mulatto mixed children were Randolph, who was Thomas Jefferson's brother, because he had other mixed children with slaves. And he was known, and even uh, Thomas Jefferson's nephew, uh, Peter Hart, was known to hang out in the slave quarter, to, to spend time there, to play their fiddles there. And Sally Hemings' only son and um, uh, three of his children that they say was Thomas Jefferson's children were named after uh, the Randolph family's name, Easton and Beverly, which were not common names for slaves, were named from the, uh, Randolph, who was Jefferson's brother. And so you just need to understand, and we will learn this in seminar three, where it talks about how the enemies of freedom have spent 
over a billion dollars in trying to malign the reputation of our founding fathers. And this was put forth in the Reese reports, congressional reports in the 1960s and 70s. So, you know, when the enemies of freedom cannot attack a, a personality or the, or I mean, cannot attack the doctrines of a man, the fruits of his life, they attack the personalities. And so we have seen over a billion dollars spent on attacking the personalities of our founding fathers. And, and look, I just tell my children, when God needs to fulfill his purposes, he doesn't work through degenerates or perverts or hypocrites or, or these types of men, these were. And if, if you read and you study these men, they were God-fearing men. I mean, we're going to learn how George Washington said in 66 occasions, God came to the rescue and helped uh, win uh, uh, certain local conflicts during the Revolutionary War. And we know, we know how uh, Jefferson felt about God, you know, and we know how what Benjamin Franklin, he wrote his book on, on the virtues, virtues are attributes of Christ. And so just keep that in mind. And I just, I just heard that this morning, I was listening to a podcast and someone referred to Thomas Jefferson and his illegitimate slave children. So when you hear these stories, you're gonna have to rise up and push back. And oh, could I just recommend my husband, we're involved with another organization called the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies. Al years ago, um, I gave an hour lecture on slavery and the founding fathers and uh, Z will put it in the chat. It's an hour long. Even if you Google Thomas Jefferson Center, Al Jackson, founding father slavery, it'll come right up. And he debunks this myth about Thomas Jefferson. So, so do just a little bit of research and study on this. And when you hear them aligning our founders, speak up, push back, don't just accept uh, the narrative that modern historians have, have created about these founding fathers. So Thomas Jefferson was caught up in the spirit of independence in 1776. This was also the same time that that pamphlet Common Sense by Thomas Paine had come out, you know, that, 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 that talks about we can't be uh, summer soldiers or sunshine patriots. And, and George Washington said that little pamphlet you know, worked a powerful change on the minds of the soldiers when they would sit around the campfires wondering if they should desert uh, the, you know, um, the army. And so in uh, May of 1776, Thomas Jefferson was asked to come to um, Philadelphia uh, and uh, to be a part of, of writing the Declaration of Independence. Um, and he really didn't want to because he knew his work had not been done in Virginia, that he was working on that new constitution that would be the model constitution for, you know, this new country that was about to be given birth. This 1776 was a difficult, this time period, the spring of 1776 was difficult for him. He was appointed to the special committee along with Benjamin Franklin from Massachusetts and, uh, or excuse me, Pennsylvania and Roger Sherman from Connecticut and Livingston from New York. And he actually asked if he could um, be dismissed and return back to Virginia. He almost missed the opportunity to write the Declaration of Independence, but it was denied. Someone was inspired and kept him there. And uh, his, his daughter had just died at Monticello. His wife was very sick. His mother had died just a few months earlier. And all this was weighing on his mind, and not to mention the worry over the state of the country uh, as 
not having, you know, a document that could allow them to live in freedom when they broke away from England. And wouldn't you know, he had severe migraines that began. For five weeks, he went uh, um, with migraines. And so these men in July met in this committee to draft the declaration. And there's a kind of a funny, cute little conversation here between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And, and uh, they're talking about who should write the declaration. And Adams said, I will not. And Jefferson says, why? And uh, Adams says, I have my reasons. And Adam says, first of all, you're a Virginian and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. And second, Adam said, I'm obnoxious and suspected and unpopular and you are very much uh, otherwise. And you can also write 10 times better than I can. And so Jefferson said, well, okay, I guess you convinced me. But that dialogue proves to me that they did not let ego get in the way. Now it took, let's go back to that picture. It took 17 days for uh, Thomas Jefferson to draft Right, Declaration of Independence. He rented a little room in a boarding house in uh, Philadelphia at that time. And it only took him, it took 17 days to write the declaration. And only one day uh, it took to write most of the de uh, Declaration of Independence where he listed all the grievances because he had already put that forth in uh, the Virginia Constitution draft. So that took one day, but it took 16 days for him to get the basic elements of those ancient principles and, and woven into the first couple paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. So he pulled from the first five books of the Bible, from Anglo-Saxon uh, common law, people's law, as it's known, and also from those uh, de um, declarations of freedom in the Magna Carta, the Petition of Ritz, and uh, the Ritz, Petition of Ritz, and one more, <laughs> one more document. And so he would work into the night and then it, people said that they heard him playing the violin late into the night is probably just a little reprieve from the heaviness of the weight of the work that he knew he was doing. At least eight of these ancient principles are can be found uh, in those first two paragraphs. The, the self-evidence, uh, the self-evident truths is a, 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 a uh, an inalienable right or a biblical principle. The laws of nature and nature's God can be found in the Bible. Uh, our creator has made us as uh, made us equally in his sight is a biblical ancient principle. And it talks about inalienable rights can't be taken away because inalienable rights are God, are God given rights and uh, that the government should protect these rights and that we are most important rights. These are all ideas that are, are embedded within all these documents that I just mentioned and in the Bible. Our most important rights are our right to life and to liberty and, and to pursue what we want. Really, they it talks about property rights, but the founders didn't want property embedded in the um, declaration because they were very sensitive to the fact that they didn't want to, to imply that property meant slavery. So they put the pursuit of happiness. We, we have the right to pursue what we want in life. And, and that government exists by our consent, our voice, right? These are all biblicals and principles and ideas that are in uh, people's law, are in how Moses led, and that the people can alter or abolish a government that is tyrannical, okay? So um, Jefferson felt 
he would go on to write that these laws, these ancient principles that he was embedding into the Declaration of Independence would be, he called them eternal laws, meaning maybe he foresaw them being used on into some sort of millennial you know, reign beyond this, this world. And he called this declaration the holy bond of our union. So it took him 17 days. And wouldn't you know, by July 4th, the Congress adopted his Declaration of Independence. They made over 60 changes, but not one of the ancient principles were um, uh, deleted or changed. 56 signers at the time uh, signed the Declaration of Independence. And we know John Hancock was one of the first um, from Massachusetts. He wrote his name extra large uh, on the Declaration of Independence so that the king could see it without his glasses, kind of a dig to the king there. Now, Jefferson wasn't originally identified as the author of, of the Declaration for fear of retaliation, but you can see all of them knew that they were signing their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honors when they signed the declaration. Now, I said, to sign that document, I need to put, you know, a yard sign out in my yard because I live in a neighborhood that anything that I would put in my yard would probably be, uh, you know, uh, different than than the sentiment of my neighborhood or even I know when I put flags out in my house you know I, I I know what all my neighbors are thinking I do put the flags out I don't always put the yard signs but these men you know were signing literally their lives away because they were to, to if they were to be captured they would die a very gruesome um, death and so at the writing of the uh, Declaration of Independence there was a special committee appointed to prepare an official seal for the United States. And the seal, of course, would go on our money and our passports and our treaties and commissions and even be a part of the seal of the, United, uh, the president of the United States. It's interesting, let's see that next slide, that Jefferson and um, Benjamin Franklin wanted the seal to be Moses leading ancient Israel out of Egypt. See that next slide. Uh, and, and they wanted that because they understood, you know, that these ancient people practiced were the very first to practice the principles of representative government. Let's see, are you there? Hello? Yeah. Oh yeah, okay, very good, very good. Sometimes when I'm just talking, I'm wondering if I've, I've lost my, let's go back to the first slide that shows, this is what Jefferson and Franklin wanted, not this one, but let's go back one more slide. They wanted our seal to be Moses leading the people out under these uh, ancient principles. And then they, they also wanted, um, uh, <laughs> let's move one more. I think we uh, might have a little it, delay. Uh, Is it the, the, two, the two black and white seals? Yeah. Let, okay. Let's go, to, let's go to the black, the black and white seal. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, black, it's up. I think we have seal. a, we and have they a wanted delay, the but second seal to be, uh, uh, Oh, okay. All right. Uh, the um, the Saxon Anglo-Saxon chiefs, because they knew that they, those Anglo-Saxons had also descended from those political ancient principles and uh, representative forms of government. This, this was the seal. Isn't that interesting? What Thomas Jefferson and uh, Franklin wanted. 
but um, a few years later, they actually adopted, let's, let's go to the next slide, the uh, a little bit more simple seal that we know and recognize today in 1782 of the Eagle and the Unfinished Pyramid. So let's see, I, I don't see that on my screen, but maybe you see that. And, uh, and there you just see our seal today of the eye of the all-knowing creator. Let's move that slide, advance it. And it's then, of course, in um, it's there. Latin, it's advanced, yeah. Julian. I think there, you have a delay. You, you're you're, okay. you're the colorful right. one, right? So, the... Yeah, yeah. The, oh, there we go. Here we go. The colorful one. Okay. <laughs> so there's the all the eye and the all knowing creator. Thanks, Z. And no then problem. in Latin, two, two classical mottos: "Anut Coptus." Boy, I'm I'm really not a Latin speaker. That means he hath favored our undertaking. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, there in Roman numerals, we've got 1776. And then a new order of the ages. That's what Nobis Ordo uh, Seclorium means. And then our eagle, uh, E Pluris. Unum means out of many became one, out of many colonies we've emerged into one nation. And so I hope you can see uh, these men that were raised up for this purpose, Samuel Adams, to have the courage to do what he did with the Sons of Liberty and then the genius of Thomas Jefferson, how God used them, how God used little Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims. And next week, we're going to talk about how God used uh, the great General Washington. Oh, my land, I just can probably guarantee I'm going to cry when I talk about George Washington. I particularly love him and I feel his, his spirit. Uh, in my home. I, I feel like I've married a George Washington. My husband <laughs> reminds me of George Washington. I tell him that from time to time. But it's interesting to note that during this 1776 period along the eastern seaboard, there was a, we, we got to a population of about 3 million by 1776. And there uh, uh, one out of every four people living in America had come from England, which is interesting to note. So you can see why they had to bring in those Haitian soldiers during the Revolutionary War, because, you know, the English didn't want to fight their brothers, that they were, those, those English soldiers <laughs> didn't want to fight, you know, the, their brothers uh, that had come from England to set up this new life in the new world. I often like to say, yes, we are having our 1776 moment right now. I mean, are we going to shirk and shun the fight? Are we going to be a part of the 93% that just start go about our business and don't want to get involved because we've got shopping and travel to do? Or are we going to rise up and do something? We know there's 3% that was loyal to uh, the crown, 3% that was willing to, to, you know, fight for this new little country and about 93% <laughs> that just didn't, didn't get too involved. You know, we're going to talk next week about this ragtag army from George Washington, the war that will make them free. So read ahead, fill in your little blanks. So we're prepared for class next week, but we will see how God used unskilled uh, farmers, old men, young boys uh, to do what, uh, um, what they did. And um, I think as we study, I think it's so easy to romanticize our founding fathers and to look at their life with awe and reverence and to think of the times uh, that they were living. But I think they were terrible times. They sacrificed much 
they, both Thomas Jefferson and um, George Washington lost all their fortune after the war. Their, their homes were in shambles. And look at their honor. Look how they've been maligned today. You know, how many people, you know, speak of them. And their lives were not easy, but they knew that God, the divine hand of providence, was by their side. Thomas Jefferson mentions five times God in the Declaration of Independence. They knew that God was upholding them to do uh, what they were doing. So they moved forward. And isn't that, I hope, how you're feeling today that God is doing the same as we're seeking to heal ourselves and to understand this history and to, and to teach our children to heal our homes, our marriages, our schools, our communities, the Constitution. Remember in Second Chronicles, God says, if we will seek his face and humble ourselves and repent from our wicked ways. And I say that is apathy. He will heal our land. And he will, enough of us mothers, particularly doing this, will justify the heavens to intervene on our path. Let's look at that next slide. I, I will teach this all throughout the Healing of America seminar because this is what anchors you, mamas, when you watch the news and you think we're just going to hell in a handbag. That if we continue to go to God in prayer and study his word and not look to the government to solve our problems, but we get on our knees and we look to God and we gather our family and we make our family a, 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 a priority and we teach them these things that we are learning. Just this last weekend, let's see that last slide. I come from a, a family of nine brothers and sisters and about five of us met up in a national park in Utah, Bryce Canyon. And um, we hiked, we went down Bryce Canyon and we hiked back up and, you know, my family through the years, like any family, there's been disagreements and some wanted to stay away, but I'm always so blessed when I am with my family. It, it, it cements who I am, it cements my entity. It, it helps me to know I am loved and there are people that would do anything for me. And, and through the years, you know, it's important that we heal these relationships. And when we're together, we prep, there's my, all my sisters are right there. And one of my brothers and brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And we, we pray when we're together, we talk about our children, we talk, we bear testimony of, of how God has worked in our life. It's important that we make family quality time a high priority and that we continue to study and you show up to these classes. I'm proud of you. You're desiring to understand how we can make America strong, how we can continue what has been given to us by these great founding fathers. And then, and then, you know, if we'll do those things, God will put on our hearts what we should do, how we can be an activist. I mean, the best activism we can have is within the four walls of our home, teaching our children, teaching our grandchildren to go to God, teaching them the stories and miracles of America. You know, activism without education is dangerous because it leads to ignorance and ignorance leads to fear and fear leads to, you know, hate and violence. And this is what we've seen in the past years of, of these young kids on Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And I've seen these firsthand living in Washington, DC. Uh, you know, a lot of these people at these rallies are 
ignorant. They're not rooted in the principles of freedom. But when you educate yourself, you're filled with hope and your, your activism becomes uh, more productive and you can make good changes. You don't have to be angry or harsh or, uh, you know, just so mad if everyone's not doing what the TV tells us or the president tells us we should be doing. We're not soulless stormtroopers. We are happy warriors grounded on principle. And so I really want to commend you for being here today and for, you know, being a part of this process of anchoring you in hope, because as, as you are anchored and you know who to turn to when things look bad and what to do, so will your children. And ultimately they are going to be the ones on the front lines when things get really bad. And so we're laying a foundation within them to have the courage to know these stories of the past, to know how God has worked through these great men and how God will work through them. He was a God of miracles back then. He is a God of miracles today. So that concludes our class today. Thank you so much. I'm going to turn it over to Laura or Z. I'm not sure who to give us any little <laughs> announcements. And then if you have any questions, you can come off um, and we can just chat about anything that has been spoken or, uh, but before that, we'll have a few little announcements. <laughs>